Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and I'm here with a longtime friend, incredible Overlander, experienced individual, Sean Gorman. He is the founder, CEO of Sea to Summit Experiences, a longtime collaborator with Land Rover and other vehicle manufacturers. He's responsible for most of the notable vehicle launches that we have here in North America and around the world. Him and his team of individuals conduct training and other support for manufacturers as well. And then he also provides a lot of engineering and driving feedback to manufacturers on the capabilities of their cars. In addition to that, Sean is extremely well-traveled and he has some very interesting experiences that I think we're going to all enjoy taking away from this conversation. For those of you that are watching on YouTube, it's going to look like I got kicked in the face by a mule. Um, and that's because I have a tooth abscess right now. I had a root canal a couple days ago, so you can all feel sorry for me. Sean already has a hard time taking me serious. And now he's going to be looking at me, look like I've got walnuts stored up for the winter in my face. So it's uh, we're just going to all go with it. We're going to take a brief break and we will be right back. This week's episode is supported in part by iCamper. They make innovative hard shell and soft-sided roof tents that are designed to survive long-term overland use. Their revolutionary X-Cover won the Overland Journal Editor's Choice Award, eliminating the bulky PVC cover and also allowing for the fitment of crossbars for carrying bikes and kayaks. Their SkyCamp Mini is another award-winning design that provides a hard shell tent in the footprint of a much smaller clamshell model. This is the perfect solution for smaller vehicles or on vehicles where rack space is dedicated to other systems. iCamper believes that the best times are those spent traveling, discovering the world with those you love most. You can find out more about their quality tents at iCamper.com. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Sean. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. For me, one of the things I think would be really interesting would be to start with where you came from as an adventurer, because some of our conversations that we've had driving together in cars, I was able to learn about these incredible adventures that you've been on, many of them humid powered when you first started traveling, including big mountains. So maybe give us some insights, some history on to what got you into being an adventurer. Well, I grew up in Colorado. I think that's a big part of it. For sure. And uh, I grew up in a household of of two parents that I wouldn't say they were really adventurous but my my grand my grandmother in particularly on my mom's side she was she was pretty adventurous and so kind of growing up in Colorado in an environment and uh, my parents were divorced and so I sort of split time between Denver and then up in the mountains and I think mm. I think uh, I'm also, I always hate to say it, but I'm an only child. So, uh, you know, you end up kind of figuring out ways to fill your time. Mm. And for me, that was just being busy and doing stuff. I never really went out trying to be adventurous. It was just sort of what happened, Mm. sort of a natural progression. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough to go to this private high school up near Aspen. I kind of describe it as a combination of a kind of a hippie, uh, kind of a hippie school, but it also is like a real work-life balance type of school. Mm. And so for me, that was really my indoctrination into understanding that you can work hard and you can play hard and you can kind of do what you need to do. And maybe there's some alternative paths other than the kind of traditional American study path. You know, you do this, you go to college, you graduate. yeah. Live to retire, that kind of thing. Sure. And that's really, I think, where, where it started. Um, and that's where the climbing started was, uh, it's a climbing and in, in really, you know, that's al- alpine climbing. So big, big mountains and, and 14ers in Colorado. And then that turned into, you know, stuff here in the States, taller stuff. And uh, when I was in high school, we did a school trip and did Denali 
Um, it was just that kind of school, you which know, is school. incredible. Yeah, that was like the school trip was Denali. School I mean, trip, yeah. If, and for those that are listening, Denali is the tallest mountain in North America, and it is a legitimate accomplishment by any standard, but certainly more so as a as a student in high school. Yeah, and I, you know, it's funny because I didn't really think much about doing it. It was sort of on a whim. He's like, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah, let's do that. And then, um, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. And and then honestly, the 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 rest of it just turned into like a lot of networking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was uh, I, I didn't grow up in a in a household where I had a lot of financial means, and things would just pop up. They would just you know, I I would I'd make a friend, uh, and it would turn out they were the head of Outward Bound or something, you know, sure. and then that would open some door, and then I'd go do that, and and then that would open more doors, and then just and actually that's how I've gotten to where I'm sitting right now. It's just really just a, a series of events that have all just sort of led to it. And uh, building on those relationships, it sounds like. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I'm just not, I'm not wired to be like a real, like bucket list guy. Mm. Um, I don't have this like laundry list of things that I feel like I must do in order for my life to, to, to feel like it's complete. I kind of plan a few weeks ahead or a month ahead, two months ahead and, and things always fill in the gaps and, and, sure. um, and they always seem to be really cool. And they present themselves in ways that I don't know. It becomes more meaningful in a way because mm. you didn't really, there's no expectation assigned to it. Right. Yeah. It, sure. That you, makes sense. I don't really know what I expect for something to happen because I don't really know what's happening next. Yeah. And you're not putting too much emphasis or weight on the future, which doesn't allow us to be in the present. And I think that's one of the challenges I know that I struggle with is I'm so goal oriented and future oriented that oftentimes I miss all of the moments in the present. And it isn't that I don't go through that because obviously you do go through the present, but if you're always thinking in the future, or in my case, if I'm always thinking towards the future, then I'm not able to fully immerse myself in what's happening in the moment. And it sounds like you found some ways to be able to do that. I try to do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think it's so, it's so easy to assign, you know, these, these ideas of what we think we're going to experience. Mm. And then, and then really the experience becomes into whether or not you've met those expectations or not. Sure. You know, so for, for me, like a good example, I just, I just came back from, from Grenada and, you know, all my friends asked me before I went, what are, what are you planning on doing while you're there? And I didn't, I didn't have a, not one single plan of anything to do there other than get there. Yeah. You have a buddy, you have a buddy that's down in Grenada. He asked you to come down. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go down and and then just see what there is to do once we're there. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, that's pretty much what what we do. And that's kind of what I do. And and it's good. It's good. Cause from a work standpoint, I can't do that. Everything has to be planned to the second. Sure. So for me personally, I, maybe that's the, maybe that's the opposite, opposite side of the coin where I have to, on my personal time, have that lack of, of structure in order to be able to, to have that level of structure at work that, that actually allows me to do the program. Well, and I've seen your program in action. I've been on many of your programs. Uh, We just last night found out that you had been a big part of setting up the new Tacoma launch. So in, in, I think it was 2016 or late 2015, and that was a great program. And then you were the, the individual that set up all of the challenges and a lot of the infrastructure for the Trek event that just happened a few months ago that I participated in. And all of those touch points that I've had has certainly shown a lot of experience on your part and a lot of, of making it look effortless, which I think is how you want people to experience something like that, where it doesn't feel like you're being rushed, but everything is happening as it needs to, to get, yeah. get towards the goal. And that shows certainly a lot of experience on your part. And I'd like to talk about some of those things in that part of your life that you've learned that can apply to travel. But the next thing that comes to mind for me is, as I recall, you made this, you did the trip to Denali 
And then sometime later, you find yourself into the Himalaya. You find yourself into Asia. Yeah. Talk a little bit about what were you trying to accomplish when you were there? Were you there to climb mountains? But I know that you came back changed as a person. Talk a little bit about what happened in that place. Yeah. So let's see, in the early kind of mid 2000s, a, a really good friend of mine actually that uh, came from Land Rover. I mean, not 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 from the corporate side, but, but really a uh, a Land Rover enthusiast, mm. him and I became really good friends and really good, uh, amazing climber really. And I think he's got seven or eight or maybe even nine Everest summits and wow. just traveling around the world climbing all the time. And, you know, it all kind of started with him asking me if I could help fill in a little bit um, on a program and I was like, Ugh, okay, yeah, I guess, I guess I can do that. And uh, yeah, so I ended up over uh, in Nepal and, and doing some technical peaks and then getting kind of higher and higher and getting on the, into some oxygen. And, you know, again, it, 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 uh, it was a great experience for me because there was no expectation on my end other than to just try to be good at, at my job. My job essentially is trying to make sure that I can make decisions for people yeah. uh, who are in a position that they can't really make decisions. You mean because of their focus on getting to the summit? Yeah, it's mul multiple layers there, right? Like, so you have a very expensive trip. So there's a certain clientele that comes with that. Um, and you have a lot of people who are used to being, you know, their doctors and lawyers and CEOs and, and heads of business and things mm -hmm. like that, that can afford to, you know, have an extra 150, $200,000 to go, to go blow on a climbing trip. And to them, it's really important, right? Cause it's, they've assigned part of their identity to it. Yeah. It takes a certain, uh, a certain kind of knack to be able to, to figure out how to communicate to people. And then on top of that is that the lack of oxygen in and of itself gives you the inability or maybe the ability to make bad decisions or not sure. think about your decisions. And, um, I mean, every, everybody's there working hard. The thing is that everybody trains, like they, they train crazy for it, but the training to climb a big mountain is not the same kind of training as it is to run a triathlon or something. Sure. And so you actually typically find that people who, who show up there are, are really used to like high burst energy mm. and it's a very low burst energy sport. It's all about maintaining cadence without sweating. Yeah, sure. I mean, really, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's about how do you figure out a pace that allows you to stay warm mm. without sweating? As soon as you sweat, things kind of get, kind of get rough, right? You start to get cold. Interesting. And so when you do that, you know, it takes a, it takes a long time and it takes, takes a lot of, you know, it takes weeks and weeks of building trust with people and, and kind of figuring out who your group of climbers are going to be, you know, so the, so the group I work with, you know, I'd have kind of two or three people assigned to me mm. and you build the trust and they start to realize that you, that's what you're there to do. I, I didn't, I never really cared about personally what my, my goal was to just try to get people up to the top. Sure. And you know, that, that actually translates a lot to what I do for work, right? It's very okay. similar clientele and, and it's also a lot of decision-making and, and figuring out kind of how do you tell people sometimes things they don't want to hear and, mm. and how do you, uh, how do you do that in a way that it makes sense to people? Yeah. You know, cause, cause a lot of it is, is buy-in just like everything else in the world. You got to get people to buy into what, to what you're trying to explain or do, mm. you know, and that, that buy-in, especially with adults, um, oftentimes you have to somehow figure out how to make them feel like it was their idea. Right. Uh, especially those type A personalities Absolutely. that are used to always winning or nearly always winning. Yeah. And now maybe they're only 200 feet from the summit and you're working really hard to help them make a good decision to save their life. Yeah. That's probably very difficult for them. Yeah. And I think the pressures have gotten harder because, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's literally people who have, 
made careers out of just being doing speaking engagements from, from climbing Everest and, sure. and their CEOs and their things. And they go around and they, they, uh, you know, they equate their, their climb to their, their climate business and things like that. Mm. And, and I think that as more and more people continue to climb it and more and more people every year continue to climb it, it actually makes that pressure harder on people looking for that. Sure. Uh, Cause, cause it's not like before where there was a few hundred people. Now you're talking, you know, four or five, 600 people a year yeah. getting those numbers down. So for them, it's a big deal and they don't want to be seen as somebody who didn't make it mm. either. So that, that was, um, I think it's actually really translated quite well, how to take care of people, how to deal with logistics of people for a long period of time, how to get them up and down mountains. Sure. And, um, it kind of translates a lot into what, to what my normal job is too. From those experiences, what did you learn yourself personally as a traveler when you, when you started to expose yourself to those very upper limits of human endurance? And in many ways, it seems that climbing mountains has, it certainly requires a lot of endurance, but it also requires a lot of focus and commitment and the willingness not to quit. You know, obviously if you have to quit because you're not going to make it in time or whatever, but there's this, there's certainly people that have accomplished these incredible physical feats because they have been so determined and they've pushed through the pain and they continue to to strive towards that goal. What did you learn about yourself and and how did that start to translate to you as a traveler climbing those big mountains and having those those very otherworldly experiences? This is a place where humans don't survive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think for me personally, it was sort of the, my first foray into fe- and actually sort of feeling a meditative state. Mm. You know, I'd climbed a lot before then, but it's kind of different when you're climbing for days and days and days and days on end. And also, uh, when you acclimatize and you go up and then you go down and you go up and then you go down, you do this over and over and over for a month, you know, mm. it's, it's, it changes your mindset. Mm. You know, it's, it's where we're, we're kind of used to that in overland travel too, right? Like we, we kind of are, are going from point A to B, but can you imagine if we did a trip and we went from A to B to C to B to C to B to A to C, you know, and that's the way that we progress. It's a, it's a real different thing because over a period of time, every single time you do one of those acclimatization kind of up and downs, you start to, you start to focus on different things. Mm. You know, the first time you do one, it's like every step is a challenge. Every, everything, right? You feel every seam in your glove, you, you mm. feel every hot spot on your foot, everything. And then after you do them a few times, the next time you're looking at the snow, you're mm. looking at the ice, you're looking at your partners, you're looking, you know, the third time you do it, you're looking at the sky and you're looking at, at things around, you know, your, your scope gets bigger Got it. because you're not thinking about the details as much. Right. And, and there's something really, like I said, meditative about that. Whereas, you know, your, your, your focus, you know, you kind of get the single point of focus mm. and then you can open it and close it as you need to. Mm. And I think that that, that's a pretty amazing place to be. In my mind, just listening to you say that it, it immediately translates to this, this goal that we all have of travel, where if you can limit the amount of equipment that you bring along the gadgets and the things that distract you, then you're not think it's like you said, the seam in the glove or the hot spot in the boot, the fewer things that we surround ourselves with that distract us from the experience, the better trained and competent we are as travelers, which means if you're doing a lot of vehicle-based travel, remote vehicle-based travel, that means feeling comfortable doing recovery, feeling comfortable driving in various conditions, feeling comfortable that you understand the vehicle and that you can service the vehicle in the field. It seems to me that the more that we can check those boxes off and feel settled around that, the more that we can notice the snow and the more that we can look up and see the sky. And that's a really interesting thing because I think back on the big endeavors that I've done, there were so many details and there were so many moving pieces that I had very few opportunities to look at the sky. Yeah. And 
Whereas in recent years, my trips have been much more intentional and much fewer moving pieces. And I've had more chances to check out the snow. And so that's a really interesting analogy that you've brought up that I think people can really learn from is minimize the distractions and then make sure you have enough competency in the well to where you can actually look around and see what you're doing and enjoy that experience. Yeah. It's, it's always hard. Uh, it's hard internally, right. To remind ourselves that, that no matter what we're doing, what we're currently doing is what we're doing. Yeah. You know, like we, we get, and I think, I think some of that's a kind of American culture. True. We get so focused on like, okay, so I'm here and, oh, I can see up there. That's actually what I need to focus on now. Mm. Like, well, then what happens when you get there? Yeah. And the next thing you know, you've just blown, you've just blown everything, just focused on everything that's next, you know? And, and I think, um, I think, you know, it's like, like, I think it's a good, good example, you know, with, with travel is that the, the more prepared you, you walk into something, the less surprised you are. Right. Mm-hmm. And we know that, especially as adults, the way that we, we don't handle surprise well, mm-hmm. right. We go into kind of a fight or flight thing and, um, and we're fortunate if, if we can get ourselves into a position where when things pop up, you don't really get rattled. The rattling comes in because your brain hasn't gone into fight or flight. Mm. It's just handling, working the problem, right? Yeah. Because um, I'm sure you're the same as me. You run into things all the time that you've never experienced before. Mm. It doesn't stress you out because you're not, it's like, uh, okay, well, I can, I can figure this out. This isn't really that big a deal. And that's probably it. I mean, I, I don't oftentimes feel rattled anymore only because I, I've had enough times being rattled where nothing really bad happened. Like you, your yeah. body eventually realizes that this is unexpected. This is a surprise. This is a potential problem, but it's not a problem yet. And it probably will become a problem if I don't do start doing something about it now. <laughs> That's what I've noticed is that maybe that cascade of events, which is very much a climbing ethos of if you start off with a hot spot in the shoe and you keep climbing and you don't address it, and then now you're climbing slower because you're in pain. Yeah. And then that starts to decline, compounds, right? compi- compounds into a very serious problem. So no, I think that that is so important to remember is let's do what we can to allow us to feel settled. And that a lot of times that's just not being so focused, like you said, on this lofty goal or being so focused on, I've got this new widget that I'm bringing along on this trip. And now this new trip is all about that widget. Um, that's such a distraction. Yeah. How many times you've been on some, something where like I was on a, on a trip, uh, well, a couple of years ago now, and a guy had just gotten a new fridge mm. and he couldn't get his phone to pair to it. He was just, he was just thrown off for like days, you know? So here we are in this amazing amazing place doing really cool stuff. And the whole time he's like trying to figure out how to get cell service so he can contact the manufacturer to figure out what he needs to do so he can see what his fridge says on his phone. I was, I just wanted to throw it out, you know, I was like, dude, it's a fridge. Yeah. (laughs) Open the lid. Is the, is the beer cold or the beer? Yeah. Yeah, We're fine. Have some fun out here. It's not, it's not about just, uh, you know, I think, and I think that's, that's what people get caught up with a lot, right? As they go and they buy a whole bunch of stuff. Mm. They want to get out in the back country with it. And some of it's just coming back with it so that they can go back and throw in their garage and then tell their buddies that it's, yeah. You know, I used it and I could check it with my phone and it's yeah. really or super post cool. it to Instagram or Put whatever. It on yeah. Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So after you did those those big trips in the Himalaya, you spent some additional time there in that region and you you kind of took a little bit of of a journey yourself personally. Um maybe journey of the mind more so than the journey of the yeah. body. Yeah, yeah, no. So yeah, back in uh I guess it was twenty seventeen. Man, I just been running full tilt with work, like crazy, crazy years, 300 days of travel and, um, 
just, just going a hundred, 120% all the time and, and realized basically that I'd, I had wound myself up right into a, into a place where like it's almost non-functional in some ways. Mm-hmm. So I decided, well, you know what, N- Nepal and, and going back there is a really, really good place for me. So I, I went uh, to this place called Tengbashe. It's this monastery. Yep. It's up pretty high. I don't know, like 16,000 feet or something. And uh, I went and lived there for a little while and kind of did uh, uh, I don't know, about a month of silence there, mm. which was awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was kind of strange. It's easy to be silent though. When you're with a bunch of people, you can't really communicate with anyways. True. Yeah. You don't um, speak their language. Yeah. Yeah. So in some ways that makes things somewhat easier. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that that's a, uh, it's important sometimes just hit the reset button a little bit. Yeah. You know, especially, especially when you can feel like start to feel different internally, it's time to like call a timeout. Yeah. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with calling a timeout every once in a while. No, I think we need to, because otherwise it just, it'll compound until something breaks. Yeah. And then you've got a much bigger problem. Yeah. You see it all the time, right? Like people just uh, wind themselves up like with work and then they just start drinking a bunch or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, like, you know, you end up, you end up compensating in some way or another. Yeah. And the next thing you know, like lives fall apart, you know, they just, you know, people get divorced. They, they, you know, they end up making these drastic changes. You know, they, they think the change of venue is going to fix it. Mm. You know, oh, I'd be happy if I lived in Tahiti. So I'm going to move to Tahiti and then mm. they get to Tahiti and realize that it's an island, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and we do that as humans. I think we, we think that this, the, this new car is going to make us happy or this new house is going to make us happy or we're going to change our partner and that's going to make us happy. Right. And it never does. If you're not happy inside yourself, if you can't find a path towards feeling content, and satisfied with just being you yeah. and whatever you're doing, then it's, it's a pretty rough road. And of course we're not taught that we don't, we don't learn that no, in not school, all, especially in school here, right? or, yeah. And, and our culture is very much to continue to strive that, that the happiness comes from achieving. And there's certainly joy that can come from achieving certain things and there's satisfaction that can come from that. But if it's not, if it's the only focus, then it usually is pretty empty after we get it. Yeah. Cause now we're like, we have that moment of, of like, satisfaction. And then we're like, Oh, what's next? What's going to get me that feeling again, Yeah, that high again. And so that time that you spent at the monastery, which sounds fascinating to me, I'm lucky if I can meditate for 10 or 15 minutes. So the, I, I mean, my monkey mind just starts, you know, going in a hundred different directions, but I still keep working at it because it's, it helps me. I have found that it's great for, for me to spend that, those moments in quiet and just reflect on my thoughts and realize what I'm really focused on, and then that can help me make decisions. But what did you find that you came away from that experience from that you actually changed in your life back in Colorado? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I think for, for the biggest thing for me is this, I'm, I I work really diligently to stay active in the moment and what I'm doing. I think before I would start to get, I'd start to get spooled up about stuff. I knew was coming up all the time. And now, now I'm trying. I mean, it's not like I'm, I'm not a pro at it. Yeah, sure. But but I do try really actively every day to get up. I try to, uh, I try to put intent behind everything. Mm. Like I try to work really actively with intent now. And that, and that's helped me a lot. Like, um, not just from a personal standpoint, it's helped me professionally too. Like just to make sure like everything that I'm doing has some intention related to it. And that, that intention I'm okay with, Mm. like it's the intention that I want it to be. Right. And Cause, cause sometimes, you know, our ego has a tendency to kind of get, get it right in our way. Right. And all the time, and yeah. a lot of time kind of think about like, what is your intention in your actions or in an email or in a word, mm. right. In a punctuation. Yeah. All of a sudden you, you kind of step back and go like, you know, that's really not, it's really not what I'm trying to accomplish. I'm mm. not really trying to create waves, I'm not trying to make that person's life more difficult or mine. And I find that to be super helpful. Um, and just be able to step back from some things sometimes. Yeah. And stay in that little bit of stillness before we react. 
Yeah. Um, if we can just give ourselves a moment of pause before we send an email or type up a text and think about like, am I just feeling really frustrated right now? And now I'm projecting that on this other person, or can I just have some kindness and let it go? And if it becomes a bigger problem, then maybe I need to address it. Right. It does take some time. Maybe it takes just some years on the planet to realize that that doesn't, it's super counterproductive. Yeah. Does it actually matter? Yeah, exactly. You know, a lot of times now. Yeah. And I've seen you with, with people and you do a really good job of, and you're a tall guy. How tall are you? Six foot seven. Okay. So you're six, seven. So I'm I mean, I'm six one. I'm looking up at you, but it's really cool to see when you interact with people, you're this tall guy. And that would, a lot of times that would feel intimidating to people. But when I watch you interact with folks, you, you're very focused on them. You don't get distracted. You don't pull out your phone. You listen to what they need. You make sure that you hear them. I, I've watched you do that at several events. And a lot of times people are frustrated. They're upset because something didn't go right, right. at Trek or their tent isn't there or sure. the vehicle's missing some piece or whatever. And you make sure that you, I've noticed you just be, you're very quiet and you listen to them to make sure you understand what they need. And then you kind of go into action after that. It certainly seems like something you've perfected. Yeah. Well, when you're six foot seven, you have to be really conscientious to not telegraph. Mm. Right. And, um, what I've, what I've learned is that it just takes very subtle cues on my part and, and it can control a room. Mm. Uh, and so I have to make sure that I do that in a positive way, not in a negative way. Sure. Um, if I'm frustrated, I can make everybody around me frustrated and not mm. say a word. Mm. Um, and so that, that's something that I don't want to spread. Right. Sure. <laughs> I don't want to be the guy who's the contagion. Yeah. It causes sure. everybody around me to, to pick up that negative energy. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of that is just awareness, right? Like being aware of what people's needs are, their tones are. And a lot of it with me is I just talk to people. Yeah. I just talk to them so I can start to figure out what normal is. Sure. And that, that's what climbing, that's a, that's a being a guide on a mountain, which is trying to figure out what people's baseline is. Then you know what's not normal. Then you can tell like something's not right. Yeah. Tone's not right. They're tired. Are they tired? Are they hurt? Are they sick? Mm. You know, are they just not, not into it? Are they pissed off? Sure. Those kind of, usually people are pretty good about telling you that they're pissed off. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, those are the kinds yeah, of things true. that I just try to, to be aware of. And then, and then I think, uh, I think something that I try really hard is just to be super transparent with people. Yeah. You know, like I'll, I just try to tell people like, here's what I, here's what I can do. Here's how I can help. Is that helpful? Yeah. And if they say no, then, it, then it, it's okay. It's theirs. <laughs> Yeah. It's you've done mine. what you can. Yeah, I don't yeah. have to, I don't have to own it all. And that can be a challenge when you're in that position of leadership and you're trying to make a client happy or whatever. And sure. sometimes letting that go is the best way forward for sure. Yeah. It's challenging. Like you said, that's a good point. I mean, a lot of times when you're working for, you know, you're working for car manufacturers, you're working for people who have a lot of skin in the game. You know, there's a lot of, lot at stake and, um, and what you're curating is sort of people's first impressions and, and actually really long-term impressions. Right. Mm. So, you know, it's, it is quite challenging and there is an art form to, to, uh, to curating it in a way that, that people feel like, like they're part of something. You know, I don't, I really don't want people to kind of, when I say people like, you know, especially like media, when they come to a media event, I want them to come and feel like they're part of the group. Like they're part of the team. I don't want them to just kind of come and feel like, I mean, I do want them to feel like they're guests, but at the end of the day, like I want them to feel like they're part of what's happening. Mm. And they're a part of the group. And when they're part of the group, then they have some ownership of it. Sure. You know, um, I will let people change their own tires when they get flat, <laughs> Yeah. you know, and it's not penalty and I'll help. And if they don't know how to do it, then I'll, I'll help them do it. 
Sure. But I'm not going to usually be the first person to run over and be like, here, just watch me do the work and then do it again. You know, like it's good for people. But you're in an automotive event. Yeah. You can get a flat tire. That's fine. I'm not. That's no big deal. I'm not going to be mad at you for getting it. Maybe I would. It depends (laughs) on how you got it. But, but, you know, at at the end of the day, like it's not, there's also no expectation that if, you know, if I got a flat tire, I wouldn't expect somebody else to change it for me. Yeah. I would, I would expect somebody to tell me if I didn't know where stuff was at or how to do it, or if I wasn't doing it safely or something. No, that's true. And, and that kind of segues into what I wanted to ask next is you have spent so much time at these vehicle events and launches and again, curating those experiences. When someone is looking to buy a new vehicle, let's talk about some of the things that they should be looking for in that new vehicle that meets their needs. I think that this is something that oftentimes happens where someone has the idea that this is the vehicle that I want because I saw it on Instagram or this person that I respect drives it, or I think this is what I want to do. But let's start from that baseline of how do we decide what vehicle to get? Because oftentimes people will buy a Tacoma and what they should buy is a Ford F-350 or they'll buy an F-350 and what they really should buy is a Tacoma. And I think because of your experience working with so many new vehicles and also doing validation on so many vehicles, how do people go through that process of deciding what is the best vehicle for them? Trying to set ego aside and trying to set, you know, the fact that they want it to project certain something about themselves or say something about themselves. How do people go through that process of picking the right car? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a loaded question. (laughs) I like that. It's a hard one. I mean, I think, I think it is important that people buy cars they like, you know, I mean, I I think, okay. So, so if we step back from, from cars, right. I think step one is to realize that most of the cars we buy, we don't need. Most of us do that. Sure. If we all just bought cars we need, we all probably drive a Nissan Leaf (laughs) back and forth to the grocery store or drop our kids off at school or whatever. Right. Like, so I always say like, if you're going to buy a car, you just figure out how you're going to use it first. And the reality is if you're going to use it to drive to work then buy something that you're like really comfortable. And especially like if you live in Southern California. Yeah. You're going to spend a lot of time like, in that car. Yeah. You're going to spend four hours a day in a car. Mm. I would probably focus on like what kind of car fit me the best, like mm. a shoe, Yeah, you know, uh, and figure out like what, what can I sit in for four hours a day and still function? Yeah. And then, and then go from there. You know, I think, I think where we can get hung up is, we get hung up and it's like, oh, I'd, I'd love to have a gladiator on 37s. And, and then it turns out what you actually do is you sit in traffic <laughs> for two hours a day Yeah, and, uh, and you drive in the snow and on the weekends, you know, you drive to and from the ski slopes or something and, and, and maybe two or three days a year, you actually take it out to, to stretch its legs a little bit. Mm-hmm. You can easily get caught up into this sort of conundrum of, of building cars right into their point of their incapabilities. Yeah. Right. Like I wish I had more power. So you put more power in it, but then you're like, I can only go a hundred miles on my fuel tank now. Right. I mean, Defender is a great example of that. So you take a Defender 90 and everybody knew they were always underpowered V8s and now they put LS in it. Still a 15 gallon gas tank. Right. So now you're great. You're still stuck at 120 miles. You know, like you can't re-engineer the car into perfection. Mm. Um, so I, I you know, for, for me, I think a big, a big piece of it is just, just how are you actually going to use it? Like, what are your actual needs for the mission? And the reality is if you, if you spent a lot of them time and money that you did on your car into skills, you could probably take most cars that are even marginally capable and do really great things with them. I mean, I, I find that right. I grew up, my first car, I still have a 1961 Land Rover two-way. I wouldn't put it high on the capability chart. Like if you drew a, you know, a scale one to 10, it's not really very capable on road. Yeah. <laughs> Kind of, kind of uncomfortable. It's, <laughs> it's definitely not capable in the winter. 
it's, you know, it's like being outside. It's, it's really hot in the summer. You have to know how to drive it off-road. In fact, if you don't know how to drive it off-road, you'll, you'll just end up fixing it. You just fix it all the time, yeah. right? So it, it, on a scale, it's, uh, it's actually low on the capability. It, you have to know what you're doing in order to do anything with it. It's super fun. Yeah. And I love it. But, you know, if somebody said, hey, I want to, you know, I want to drive a car down to Baja, it wouldn't be the car I would tell them to take. It looks cool. For sure. It's a story. No doubt. Something to talk about. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's not, it's probably not the most intelligent thing to do. And, and the flip side of the coin is, that, you know, and of course, uh, you know, I do a lot of stuff with the Land Rover stuff. So constantly you get fed, oh, this, these cars are too complicated. And, that, and they are really complicated. I mean, they're, anybody who's going to try to say they're not complicated kind of of it. Yeah. Once you end up with 13 computers on board, it's pretty complicated. They're super complicated. <laughs> yeah. So with, with that said is like, again, if your skill, if your skill set's one where like for me, my skill set, actually, I, I feel in some ways more comfortable in a complicated car than a less complicated car. I like it when cars have lights that blink and check engine lights that come on and warnings that pop up on dashes because that stuff comes on way before you have a mechanical failure. Mm. You know, I'd much rather have something tell me like I got an ABS sensor that doesn't work mm. than driving down the road and have an axle brake. So there's like a, some compromise there. And a lot of that has to do with what you know, what's in your personal toolkit as an individual. So for me, I'm real comfortable with electronic stuff. I'm real comfortable with computer stuff. Um, and they've gotten really good. Yeah. You know, and, 15 years ago, it would have been a different conversation. Absolutely. And and there's, and the failures have changed, right? So like there's a, it's a difference to have a failure where a car goes into a limp home or something where you're limited to 35 miles an hour versus it's dead. doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the advantage obviously of mechanical stuff is that somebody can ship you parts and you can fix it with tool. Yeah, and there's, there's something to be said for that too. I mean, for, for sure. sure. Yeah, so, for sure. so it's sort of like, how do you find that balance? Right. And, um, and I think those cars that people really are attracted to, particularly in, in the overland world are the ones that do fit that balance. Well, um, that kind of fit, you know, I was like, like, you know, I'm in the motorcycles too. Right. So I have this 1150 GS adventure to me. Like, that's why I like that bike. It's like, it's got, you know, it's fuel injected. It's kind of got like all the, it's got ABS. It's mm-hmm. got all just the right amount of stuff, but it's all kind of mechanical fixed stuff too. For sure. So it's like, it's kind of the tank. It's kind of, you know, it just kind of keeps going. You can fix it with tools for the most part. Yep. Um, Air cooled, oil cooled. Yeah. Yeah, So it's, you're right. The 1150 is one of those high watermark motorcycles for sure. Now it's also heavy. It's heavy. It's the heaviest of the GSs, but there are so many people that have ridden around the world on those bikes because again, you can usually fix everything on it yourself. You don't need a laptop. Parts are easy to get. For sure. And when you're six foot seven, the weight thing becomes kind of less of a true moot point. There's a lot of leverage. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that on the, on the vehicle selection side, what I've seen is, and you make a really good point about, you need to like the car too, because life isn't supposed to be like, take the safest path or the thing that makes the most sense. I mean, cause you know, this, the end is certain. So you might as well have some fun along the way. So you're right. I think having a vehicle that turns you on in some way is a good idea, but then also maybe putting some framework around it. So that way, after you make that initial purchase and you feel super excited that you just got this Ford Bronco or whatever, that it's also going to work for you. I mean, if you have a family of four and you're trying to overland in a Ford Bronco, probably going to be a bit frustrating yeah. for you and your family. Whereas maybe what you need is a Dodge Power Wagon. Yeah with you know a trailer or something behind it so that you can actually travel comfortably and your kids want to go back out with you again the next time. I think that what I've seen in recent years is people are actually starting to do that more. When we first started Overland Journal, the vehicle that most people aspired to was either a Defender or a Land Cruiser. A Defender or a Land Cruiser has a, they're very effective vehicles for what they do, but they don't actually meet the needs of most people. 
Um, they both get fairly poor fuel economy, particularly if you're looking in an NAS 110 or something like that. Uh, they're not very comfortable at speed on the highway, like an 80 series Land Cruiser struggles. They get, they overheat. Uh, they don't do well. They burn a lot of fuel because uh, they weren't meant to go yeah. 80 miles an hour. They were meant to go 80 kilometers an hour. Both of those cars were meant to go 80 kilometers an hour, maybe a hundred kilometers an hour. So maybe 62 miles an hour is what they were meant to do. Yeah. And now when we expect them to do all these other things and we load them up with a bunch of accessories and big tires and roof racks and roof tents and everything else like that, everything really starts to not work well. And you end up really frustrated. And then you, you see them for sale on bring a trailer expedition portal or something like that. You see them on for sale pretty soon and thereafter yeah. because they just don't work well. Whereas if you start off with a vehicle that has the attributes that allow them to be used how you use a car, then the, I think the outcomes are much better. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and right. We, I think a lot of times what you find, you go buy a used car, you know, these, these used, these used rigs are great. Mm-hmm. Right. Somebody usually puts in a ton of time, a ton of, ton of money. And they're usually basket cases. Mm. They, you know, yeah. <laughs> their wires everywhere. Like a bird, you open the hood is like, oh, it's a bird's nest under here. You know, just stuff everywhere. They're, they're great. Uh, they're great finds. If you know what you're, you can kind of pull all that stuff out and, and start, start fresh. Cause people just get super frustrated, like super frustrated. Yeah. And I then got, they end up selling it just because of the last thing that broke the camel's back. And it's usually something minor. And a special thanks to this week's sponsor, Dometic. When you're heading out, you don't want anything to hold you back. Whether you're planning a week-long adventure or a quick overnight trip to your favorite outdoor spot, we've got you. Dometic's CFX3 powered cooler is designed with any size adventure in mind. The CFX3 allows you to bring more of your favorite food and drink along for the ride, no matter how far you plan to go. Available in multiple sizes, the CFX3 is built for the demands of outdoor use and comes with a handy app that gives you complete control at your fingertips. It's the -the state-of-the-art, designed-for-rugged-use cooler that you can rely on and enjoy for years to come. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I got got a friend and um, he's like the most ADD guy with cars I know. Um, Honest to God, he probably buys like eight cars a year maybe more. It just doesn't stop. Like he buys one and he's like, oh, this is perfect. It always starts the same. This car is perfect. This is a keeper. And then two months later, he's like, yeah, I got a different one. Why'd you get different? Well, I, the AC didn't work quite, you know, like it just wasn't, <laughs> it couldn't keep up in the, in the summer. It's too hot. So what'd you get? I got another one, but it's got a different AC system. In it, so it's good. All right. You sure. know, it's like at some point, you know, like, you know, maybe it's just the wrong, maybe it's just the wrong car. Yeah. You know, it's just the wrong model for you. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, and then I think the other part too, is like, if you're, if you're going to build a car to like do an around the world trip in, you could probably think about maybe buying that car and building it and then just buying something cheap as your car. Right. I think that's another challenge that we run into sometimes is that again, you, people will, will go and, 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 and put tons and tons and tons of money, put $150,000 into a $30,000 car. Mm. And they're like, that's great. I take it to work. I can do this and that. And it's like, why? What's the cost per like, mileage on per mile on that? Yeah, like why? You know, like if you, you know, if you, you start building, I mean, around the world car, that's a specialized rig, right? Mm. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty specific mission. Mm. And I think, uh, I think here in the States and particularly, you know, like I, I know where I live. So I'm, you know, I live just outside of Boulder. We see it a lot there where there's a lot of cars that are kind of not very good at anything. And I think I, I always blame it on Moab. I love Moab, right? But, but Mo, Moab's an off-road site. I mean, it's, it's four-wheeling. It's designed to push yeah. cars. Off-road amusement park. Yeah. And so, a beautiful one at that. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing. And, and yeah. I love it. And, uh, but the same standpoint is like, if I were building a car to drive to Baja, it wouldn't probably be the best Moab car and the best yeah. Moab car wouldn't be the best Baja car because they're True. different things, right? I'm looking for they different are. kinds of traction and different kinds of protection. Mm-hmm. You know, Moab, we, we do validation testing in Moab and, and 
you know, everybody thinks it's because of traction, but it's not really. I mean, we have lots of, a traction lot of traction there, there. But, but what we do there is we, we test validation for durability there. You know, everything you touch hurts a car. It's designed to bend, break, tons of torque. Um, you know, there's more, probably more torque in the driveline components in that kind of environment than anywhere, but well more than the street, right? There's more sure. friction than the street. So, um, you know, that's, if you can build a car that's really good in Moab, it's probably not necessarily not going to be the best car for a big, long, long slog. You know, the gearing is going to be wrong. The tires are going to be wrong, mm. all that kind of stuff. So it's easy to do where I live build something that's like really good in Moab, but then you want to go do some crazy trip on it and then complain about it, mm. you know, put a roof tent on, right? That's one way to make your car really <laughs> struggle and stuff. Struggle with everything. Just about. <laughs> yeah. You can't, yeah. So you can't fit here. You can't, oh, you can't go to the airport. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's so capable. You can't actually yeah. go to the airport cause you can't pick anybody up. That's true. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. You can't oh, ski anymore cause everything's parking garage now. You can't fit in there. You know, it's just, yeah. it's horrible. Yeah. You got to know what your purpose is for sure. Yeah. So when, when someone, let's say they kind of pinpointed this is what I'm looking for. I'd like to, I'd like to buy, let's use the Jeep Wrangler Gladiator as an example. So I'd like to buy a Gladiator. When, when someone starts to, to test the vehicle, what are some of the things that you think people should look for? Cause you do this all day long validation and you're looking for attributes in the car. If they can disconnect their emotion around purchasing the vehicle, what should they be looking for and how it behaves, how it performs? What are some things that they should be looking at as a, as a priority? Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. So, I mean, one of the things I always think about, even when I'm doing validation testing is that if something is calibrated well, and to be fair, somebody who's buying a car shouldn't really be thinking like, oh, this, this thing's calibrated well, mm. but, but it still fits into the same thing, which is that if it's calibrated really well, you probably don't notice it. Right. So like if, if an engine, oh, actually transmission is probably a better example. So you know, if, if you get in a car and you drive it and you don't ever even really notice the fact that it has a transmission, it's calibrated really well. Mm. You, you shouldn't really notice that it shifts hard, doesn't shift, downshifts weird, locks up weird, has strains. Same thing. All, the whole car is that way, right? Like sounds, you know, if, if you notice initially that something bothers you in the first 15 minutes of driving, it's going to really bother you when you own it. If you can hear the road, you can hear the tires. If you can, if you can feel the seats, mm. if the steering wheel feels kind of, that's kind of a weird feeling in my hand. Um, if any of that stuff you notice right away, it's going to bug the hell out of you oh, the, that's, whole, that's, the whole time. That's so true. And, and a fun example of that, we got the Bronco here to test. So I drove the Bronco. There were some things that I found about it that I didn't care for. And there's a lot of things that I liked about it. And then Matt Scott drove it. And he's like, man, he's like, I couldn't own this car. I said, why? He says it whistles. It's so loud the top. And I'm like, Oh, that's a blind spot for me. I have, I have hearing loss from the military. Yeah. So I did not hear the whistle that he heard. So it made me realize like, Oh, that's actually kind of a blind spot for me. in my evaluation is like when it comes to, to vibration, harshness, those I can pick up. But when it comes to noise in a vehicle, I'm probably not the best one to Yep. Take a look at it. So that was a realization for me that you're right. I mean, Matt literally, he's like, I really like the car. It looks super cool. It's super capable. I couldn't drive it because the top is so loud. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, I, I notice in myself that I'm, I'm not critical, but I, I notice everything in a car. You That's know, what I, you're being paid to do. I get in every car and I'm like, uh, <laughs> see right rear tires out of balance. Yeah. Uh, uh, the brakes pulling slightly to the left, mm. uh, the alignment casters off slightly. You know, sure. like I just, it just, uh, I just must drive my wife nuts. <laughs> I just get in it and just, and she's like, what do you think? And I'm like, "Eh, yeah, it's good. You know, it's great. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but you, you're an engineer. That's how your mind works. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, that's why, that's why they pay me to do right. Is to sure. To look at things and, and see areas of that there's room for improvement and then try to help figure out if it's worth improving. That's a big part of it. Yeah, for like, sure. Is it worth the investment to make that different? Yeah. And I think that's the challenge, right? I mean, and, and it's kind of part of, part of why I do like working with Land Rover because they put a lot of, a lot of effort into stuff that other manufacturers just kind of accept different clientele. Mm. you know, different fit and finish and, mm. and what, um, what, what are, what are levels of people's expectations? You know, when you touch a knob, you know, it's mm. always a good example to me. Like when you, you reach down and turn the the fan control up, like, what is that? What should that feel like? What should a door feel like when you close it? What should, you know, like everything, everything's that way. What should a steering wheel feel like mm. in your hand? You know, like what do, do the finishes actually matter? Does it need to be cushioned? Is it too hot? Is it too cold? Is it, yeah, you know, that's all interesting. That? there's a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of input on that. You know, I mean, you can, you work with, with certain manufacturers and you're like, you know, this, this just feels weird. Like the steering wheel feels like it's two inches too high and I'm six foot seven. Mm. How can, how can that work for somebody who's five foot five? And they're like, eh, kind of, kind of like, okay, yeah, whatever. You know, not, not an issue. Um, what you're talking about last night with the brute, right? I love Jeeps, but they have that huge tub and the tub is a pain in the neck. I mean, I don't, I don't know it. anybody who thinks that <laughs> The tub is a great way to get in and out of a car. It's tough. <laughs> you know, you're always flopping your legs around trying to get your legs in and out sure. of the tub, you know, and, uh, but it's just, you know, we, we sort of accept that and it's, it is, it is what it is, but. Uh, That's an interesting comment about Land Rovers and it, it dovetails in with what I oftentimes hear people who know at Land Rovers well and that they've owned them for a long time and they have some awareness around the vehicle. You'll most often hear that a Land Rover is at its best when it's near stock. Um, and that has been true for back to the, the Series 2A that you have. Uh, and then you also have a 109 too. You have a couple Series trucks. Yeah, no, I, so I have a 109. That's that's the 61. That's okay, the old one. It. Yeah. And then I got a, uh, and then 86 Defender 110. And then I have a 94 uh, NAS 90. Yeah. My wife drives a Series 2 Discovery. Perfect. And I got a diesel Nissan truck too. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I realized that the the more Land Rovers that I've owned, the more I've been inclined to keep them as close to stock as possible. And you, hearing you talk about that validation being very important to Land Rover, it now makes more sense. There are some vehicles where they make them to be a great canvas. Like a Jeep is a good example yeah. of that. They deliver a super capable canvas for people to then put in different seats or or maybe they put insulation in the roof because that's important to them. And But like the base vehicle is this perfect canvas for modification. And it's probably why they're the most modified vehicle in the segment. You have a vehicle like a new Defender, which pretty much anything that you do to that car, other than a slight change in tires, maybe you do a little bit of a, like a Johnson rod style lift where you get maybe 30 millimeters or 20 millimeters more out of it for ground clearance. If you do much more than that, the car starts to not work as well. Yeah. You know, it, it has a fixed amount of articulation. It has a fixed amount of wheel travel. And if you start robbing too much extension travel to gain compression, then it's going to start not working as well. So I, I, I agree. And even the defender behind us here, it is stock. Yeah. I mean, there's not a part on that vehicle other than the, the rock sliders that wouldn't come from the factory. You know, the snorkels, a man tech, the front bumper, they put on their special vehicles. It's all stock and it works best. I found in that condition. Yeah. Well, and that's probably especially true because you've got a lot of skill set to be able to drive it. Mm. You know, and I think that, I think that that's where a lot of modification comes from is that you have kind of two options, right? You can either learn to become good at your craft and learn how to actually manipulate a car or 
you can just make a car so that you can bounce off of stuff. Mm. You know, you can put bigger tires on it and put bumpers and sliders and skid plates and walkers. And everything you don't worry it. about it. You yeah. just go, right? So it turns into a point and shoot. And we see that all the time. I mean, Moab is the perfect place to see that. You just go run Hell's Revenge on a Saturday afternoon. You can just tell how people are by looking at their car. Mm. You know, I mean, I take a Vogue on Hell's Revenge. <laughs> You know, I mean, this is a, the totally no, totally. Yeah, we <laughs> have this We've car taking big body Range Rovers on Hell's Revenge. This, for car, sure. this car has no, uh, and, and I always tell people like that, you know, we, we take, we take customers who have never off-roaded before. I can think of this one, this one woman is a judge out in New Jersey. She's, I don't know, maybe five foot tall, rarely drives, does own a Range Rover, comes on all of all these events with us. And she's terrified of most stuff. I mean, she's not a comfortable driver. That just tells me how good the cars are. Mm. And She's not getting flat tires and we're not banging up and, you know, and we will go and do a month of event with people that have never driven off road before on Hell's Revenge and, you know, a lot of, a lot of hard trails in Moab. We might replace um, maybe one wheel per car at sure. the end of that. So that means we're not even hitting, hitting wheels. We don't air down. A lot of times we air up <laughs> trying to get, sure. trying to get more rim protection. Sure. Uh, you know, we're running on 20s, 21s, 22s, soon to be 23s. You know, yeah. It's ridiculous. I'm yeah. not condoning. <laughs> I, I know that. That's what it's that. how it works. Yeah, <laughs> it's just the way it is. It's what the consumer wants. But that, but that, that's a, um, I mean, but that, that translates into skill, right? So you put somebody who really knows how to manipulate a car and, the, and, my, and my team's really good at it. So they can sit right seat or even most of the time be outside of the car and quickly teach somebody how to, how to drive a car. And, and essentially in some ways it's a lot like, uh, it's kind of like driving remote control just mm. from person to person. You know, I'm driving the car from outside, even though I'm not the one behind the wheel, I'm telling them where to go, how fast to go, how slow to go, when to slow down, where the tires need to go. Like mm. that. It's just, it's just time and effort. It depends. You know, if you want to drive 40 miles an hour down a trail, then you probably got to modify it. Yeah. If you want to just take a stock car and go do really cool stuff with it. That by the way, is more challenging. I think it's fun to take stock vehicles places. Yeah. That's why I still have so much love for testing stock vehicles is it, I really got to pay attention. Yeah. It's way, I mean, it's way more challenging. You actually have to drive it. Right. I mean, I always take, if I do an event and I have all these different kinds of cars or whatever the least capable car is in these people's minds, a lot of times for me, that's a Vogue. It's close to the ground. Mm -hmm all wheel drive, no low range. I'll take whoever's probably the best driver and I'll put them in an evoke with me. I'll just, and I just challenge them that way. Mm. You're a good driver. Oh yeah. I'm a great driver. Perfect. <laughs> You're going to be in the evoke with me. And like, uh, That's, good. <laughs> That's good though. <laughs> okay. I'll do That's that. That's great. Well, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was what you see as kind of fundamental modifications to a car, which this is kind of a fun transition because we just talked at length about why training and driver skill and, and confidence behind the wheel and getting seat time is more important than modifications. But let's take your personal vehicles, for example, or like when you drove around the country in the new Defender last year, yeah. what were some of the things that you did focus on, on the vehicle to make, to kind of make it yours, where you felt like you checked the boxes that you need oh, right. as, a, as a baseline? Yeah. Well, I mean, I always start with tires mm. and for me, it's not necessarily changing size, but it is important to have a tire that fits the, again, that mission that you're looking for. So, you know, like for, for the way I use the car, I think it's important to have something that, that, uh, is, it's got some, some increased kind of off-road traction, a little bit of mud. Um, but also ideally in a perfect world to be a little extra sidewall protection. So, so if, 
So if you can't go up in size, at least you can go up in, in uh, the quality of the tire itself, give you, you some help with it. Cause it doesn't really matter how good you are. Sometimes you're just going to get, <laughs> going to get a flat, you know, and that's sure. primarily going to be in the sidewalls. So, you know, if you can put a BFG or something on it, that it gives you just that that little bit of added protection is a huge, huge advantage. Yeah, I would say so. You know, after that, I think for me, the next important thing is to make sure that I actually have a car that's recoverable. This is becoming more difficult. We typically will always find good recovery points on the front of a car in some, some capacity. When we get to the back, you know, ideally I would rather have recovery points that are not a, that's not a trailer hitch. Um, if I had my druthers, you know, I, in fact, I, I will use a screw and eyelet before I'll use a hitch typically. Hmm. Um, they're not designed for that kind of a strain. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're fine if you're just sort of pulling something out and it's rolling, but if you're really going to have to yank or something, uh, the majority of time it's not designed for it and, and it can actually cause some problems back there. And the eyelets, if it has an eyelet, it's been designed for whatever the, the manufacturer specs it to. Right. So, uh, usually that's at least one and a half times gross vehicle weight. Typically, um, sometimes it's as high as three or four times gross vehicle weight. And then, uh, if you really dig into it, sometimes you can even find specs on angles and, you know, you really shouldn't be yanking anything 90 degrees. Mm. If you, I say this, but you know, in the real world, you don't always get to choose how you get stuck, <laughs> you know? So, you know, if the option is if you, you think you might uh, exceed the um, the specifications of the car or you're going to be walking for 50 miles and I would probably give it a go. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, you, you, you take the hand you're dealt. Yeah, I think the key is right is to understand um, to understand what risks you are choosing or, or or not choosing to take. You know, you may get yourself into a position where, like, if this fails, I really am stuck. Like, I'm going to be in really big trouble. Sure. Um, and maybe it is worth then thinking about maybe just hanging out with a car for a few days or yeah, calling for sure. help or something. I mean, those things do exist. And um, but but if you don't even know, right? If you're just operating in ignorance, doesn't mean that it worked. It just means that you got lucky. Yeah. Um, so I think, and I think that's what comes with experience and knowledge is to be able to make those decisions based on on cal- calculating those risks. So yeah, recovery points I think are really important one. Um, I guess on some of the newer stuff. You know, I think it's, it's not a bad idea to, uh, to think about, you know, if you can get a factory winch or something, I think it's pretty awesome. I mean, I, I kind of love and hate the new winch setups on cars. Yeah, I, uh, They look good, but they don't function well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love the fact that they are hidden mm. and they're not, they're not present all the time, but in the reality and the functionality of using it, that kind of sucks too. It does. Yeah. So, um, you know, with that said is I rarely use my winch to ever pull myself out. Yeah. You know, I mean, rarely. And uh, yeah, down tree or someone else's stuck or yeah. you got a boulder that rolled into the trail. Yeah, totally. So for no more than I actually probably use it in practicality, a hidden winch probably is sufficient. Mm. Um, but if I was doing training with one all the time, or if I was going someplace that I knew that I was going to be using a winch all the time, I would definitely, I'd probably even as much as cut holes out in my bumper. So I get access to it. Yep. You should be able to touch your winch. It's a good, good rule of thumb. For sure. If you, if you can't touch your winch, uh, you're going to run into problems at some point. It's just, a, it's, it's, you know, especially with rope. I love rope, but I, <laughs> rope brings its own set of, of issues. Yeah. It's uh, not all rainbows and unicorns with rope. No, I mean, I don't especially, know. I mean, especially if you're getting a lot of use out of it, you're, you know, kind of dragging it, especially muddy conditions where you're coming over crowns of trails where the, where the rope might hit the ground and get filled with dirt or hit a rock and yeah, break or, very quickly. Or, you know, it pinches itself. And so now you're, sure. you're spooling out, spooling it, you know, and, or and, and it, smears it, itself as it comes through the layers. Yeah. yeah. And you can't, you know, you, oh, yeah. I mean, it, it runs into its own. It does. Gamut of issues. So it's, it's not the perfect solution, but it's a, it's our best solution. It's a right good now. solution. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah. And particularly and I, around safety. And I like, actually like teaching people winch is better with cable. Mm. 
I mean, mostly because if you're, if you're comfortable and confident with cable, then it's a ropes piece of cake. Mm. But if you can't use a cable, it means that you're probably not aware enough in my mind, <laughs> your, your lack of, your lack of awareness yeah. is an indicator that you might run into problems with your winch in the future. Yeah. We were just talking about that last night about how, when ropes first came out, they'd say, yeah, when they snap, they just fall to the ground. And the first time I had a, a rope snap at near the stall rating of the winch, it broke and went to the tree that it was attached to and the pulley block dented the tree. And then the rope and the ARB sail that I had attached to it went another 60 feet beyond the tree. I mean, the difference is mass, so it's not likely to cut your leg off, but there is a lot of energy in that rope that can still do a lot of damage. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, you know, winching is one of those things that get, uh, it's a great skill set to have, mm. but it's a skill set for sure. It's not something that you just go buy and bolt on and then sort of figure it out. You know, you know, I, I always, we, we used to always use the Warren intro kind of, uh, winching manual. It's a great manual. It is. It's kind of, it's kind of a crap too, right? Because you, you really shouldn't be learning how to winch from a book. And if you're, if, if you got that thing in your glove box and that's, that's what you're using the first time you need it, mm. it's probably, it's probably not the right tool for you necessarily. Yeah. Take it might the, work, you know, yeah, but. take the time. If you're going to invest $50,000 in a new truck, spend another $500 to go to a day four wheel drive training course to learn how to drive sure. it. Yeah. If you're going to spend $2,000 on a winch, probably closer to $3,000 or more with a bumper, then spend two, $300 for a half day winching course yeah. in your area or find out when your local club is going to do that or go onto the forum and ask somebody that lives in the area like, Hey, can we all get together and do a little winching class? Um, that can be a great way for people to gain some skills to use the tools that they've invested so much money in. Yeah, for sure. You know, and like, especially with winches, cause you know, as you know, Scott, winch speeds have gotten fast. Mm. You know, this, this thing of speed winching, I don't really get it myself. I mean, I get it if you're like competitive winching. Sure. Um, yeah, that's not, it's not my thing, right? Like it's, it's an unstuck tool, yeah. but, uh, you know, like you can get hurt from a winch. There's no doubt about it. You know, I actually, just a few weeks ago, I heard about a guy who cut his finger off with a winch. It was a technician at a retailer and he was spooling it up, you know, just normal pulled it up and let his hand get in there. That sort of thing that you always sort of figures like a horror stories, but you're like, ah, I guess that does really does, does really happen. happen. And so that's, and that's kind of career limit limiting thing for a technician to, to have a missing finger. Sure. You know, that's, that's kind of hard to recover from. No doubt. So you definitely, definitely need to know what you're doing. Yeah. Treat them with respect. And, and if you make the investment in that great tool, learn how to use it. Yeah. And I think that that's really good advice for, for folks. One of the things that I like to ask in these interviews is what is your two, three, one, two, three favorite books, books that have had the biggest impression on you. Um, it can be travel related or not just something, you know, volumes that have really made a difference yeah. in you. Books. Yeah. I'm all over the board with books. I like Paul Thoreau books. Mm. I don't know if you ever read any. Yeah. He's stuff. great. Yeah. I just, uh, I don't know. He, I, you know, the thing I like about <laughs> it's weird. I send it, I tend to read travel books more when I travel, which doesn't make, really make any sense. Um, <laughs> that's true. And, and I'm, um, I'm a huge fan of just taking books from places. Like that doesn't mean I'm a klepto or anything, but you know, like I love it when you go into like a, uh, like a hotel and there's like a bookcase of old books that people have left and I'll just sort of grab something and, and read it. And so I end up with, uh, with lots of books. I actually have not, I couldn't even tell you what they were. I'm actually, I really like American history books too. Mm. And I'm reading this great book right now called uh, revolver. Okay. It's, uh, I, I couldn't even tell you who wrote it. It's, it's really well written, but, uh, it's about Samuel Colt. Oh, interesting. And, um, and sort of his progression of developing the, the Colt revolver and, and actually the, the, the story in and of itself is, 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 
it's really mind blowing in my mind because you don't realize how much our culture, not just from the fact that it was a gun, but our, our actual history as a, as a nation has been really dictated um, by the manufacturing kind of idea that Colt put together for his, mm. for his gun. And, um, and I didn't know anything really about him and I, I love to shoot and stuff, but sure. um, I didn't know that much about Sam Colt, but you know, he, he pretty much invented this gun, like in his late teens Amazing um, on a trip to, to India and on a boat, you know, and um, amazing. He kind of whittled this wooden revolver out that, you know, how, how it rotated the cylinders and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and all these kind of trials and tribulations to try to get it patented and all the, we talk about political corruption now, but we're in good shape compared to how things were then. And, you know, literally norm, the norm then was, is that you paid politicians to make things get approved and that was considered socially acceptable. Mm. But, you know, just the whole uh, manufacturing and figuring out how to, to build firearms and machinery so that they were, had the interchangeable parts and, um, assembly line, you know, this is well, this is well before Henry Ford, really. Sure. but you know, assembly line and building factories in other parts of the world and, and things like that. It's really, really great. That sounds it's fascinating. Quite, it's quite a good book. Actually. I like, I like that suggestion. I think I'm going to pick that one up. Yeah, it's a good, cool. I, I stole it from my dad. <laughs> well, and that would make sense. My, my, my dad also loves those old Colt 45s and he's got a couple of them and, and it would be a fun one to get for him maybe for Christmas. It's perfect timing. Uh, that's fantastic. I've just been reading it. It's like, it's just, it's a, uh, it's captivating book, you know, cause it's, um, it's, uh, it's almost like a writer reading it's like the writer is reading it to the reader oh okay the way it's written okay um you know it's it's all sort of got a lot of footnotes and stuff on where information came from but it's it's uh it, it's it's real easy it's easy to read it's a big book but it's, it's pretty easy uh, that's I, cool. what a great that. what a great suggestion i like that a lot Oh, that's great. And it's funny that you say that you read travel books when you travel. I realize that I've started to read sailing boats when I'm on my sailboat. So I think maybe, which is funny, I should just be sailing the boat instead yeah. of reading about other people sailing the boat. So that's funny. And then the last thing that we'd like to ask is if someone came to you, which I'm sure has happened many times in your career, and they said, hey, I'd love to travel around the world. What advice would you give that person? Just your kind of unfiltered practical advice about what would be their first steps or their considerations? <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, I think my first piece of advice would be is don't be afraid to start local. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of times, I mean, we're, especially if we live, if you live here, right? Like we are so incredibly blessed in this country. Not only do we have an incredible amount of diversity, you could spend a whole lifetime traveling the U S get to experience a lot of, a lot of stuff, right? We have a ton of culture here. Um, contrary to what most Europeans think, mm. we do have a ton of culture here and we <laughs> it's have just a, different, <laughs> it is different. Right. Yeah. And it, and that's cool. And things that we take for granted, like the fact that we travel from state to state and, um, we have all this federal land and we have access to areas that everywhere else in the world would be owned by somebody and behind a fence. You know, I would, I would just say like, you know, start, start local, go, go do some stuff that you think you might want to do, get an, get an idea of what it is. Cause, cause really travels, like there's a lot of different things that are related to that. Some people love the, the mechanics of it. Sure. They love figuring out if they can make their car do 10,000 miles. Sure. You know, other people are, it's all about culture and some people it's about food and some people it's about buying stuff, mm. you know, like you figure out what you like and then build a trip around what it is that, that like you that. like, you know, you know, versus um, you know, I, I think me, me personally, the thing I like about travel is culture. I love seeing how other people live and work and how they make a living and what's important to them, what's not important to them. And I think a lot of times that's, that's helpful for me just individually, you kind of puts things into perspective. Like these people have to work really hard to have clean water every day or oh, actually a great example. I was in, like I said, I was in Grenada. You can't get eggs there. Mm. And I don't even think about it. Right. Make eggs here is a staple. You go to 7-Eleven, get eggs. 
you go there and you're like, you got eggs? And you're like, oh, yeah, maybe in like a couple of weeks, man, some fresh eggs or something, you know, it's like you just take take it for granted. And um, I think that's kind of the, the beauty of it is to figure out what what part of it that you like and then figure out how to do it. You know, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't have to be big and long either. Right. Like it, it doesn't like I, I live in Colorado and my wife and I live to go to Wyoming and Wyoming's close. I'm an hour away from the border. It's a different place. It's a different place than where I live. I mean, people are different. The train's different. Um, way more, way more remote. Mm. You know, and it's it's like it's I I could be in Siberia. You know, it's a different sure. place. Sure. And um, don't get caught up on the name. If you you know, like just just go do what you like to do. It's it's about using the world as a tool and car get there and oh, I can be a car, be a motorcycle, be whatever you want, be your feet, but whatever you're into, just 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 do it. Just have fun with it. Yeah, enjoy don't, it. Don't worry about it. You know, don't get caught up on the I got to fill my passport up. If that's what you decide you want to do, great. But but uh, don't don't let it block what you got. Yeah. Got right in your backyard. Well, and that and that dovetails so nicely into how the conversation started, which is being present in these experiences that we have. And I, and I appreciate that reminder from you. And I've seen you live that way in your life. And for those that are listening, just it's it's not about filling the passport. It's about doing something that you love with people that you love, and then being really present in that experience so that you have those memories to yeah. come back to um, later in life. So I really appreciate your time, Sean. How do people find more about you? How do they find you on Instagram or, or what's your website? Anything you'd like to share so that people can find out more information about you and what you do and yeah, follow, sure. follow your travels? My, uh, let's see, my company website is uh, s2sx.com. And, uh, I don't do Facebook, but I do Instagram, which is a uh, C to some S E A, the number two S U M. And, uh, that's my personal one. So that's usually kind of what I'm up to. Sure. And then, uh, yeah, my, my company website's kind of all the stuff that uh, I'm working on that, that I'm allowed to put out there in the sure. public. Some of it, a lot of the stuff I can't talk about or I can't really like publish much, but <laughs> sure. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of, kind of what I'm up to. And you've started contributing some content to Overland Journal and Expedition oh, yeah. Portal. So we really appreciate your involvement. Um, you guys that are listening will start to hear and and see more of Sean in future editions of the magazine, which is really exciting. He's got a comprehensive compressor test coming up that he did um, that I think is going to make for some really wonderful content. And Sean, thank you so much for not only being a great friend, but for being on the podcast and sharing your insights. We really appreciate you being here today. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>